it's good to be back with you after we were away last week in Albuquerque for Kevin's wedding, and so we always miss our church when we're not here, so welcome out today, glad to have you join us. We are going to be in the book of Isaiah, so if you want to find your way there or launch your app, go ahead and do so. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. The words arrested me when I first read them. I distinctly remember the time when I first came across these words, and they grabbed hold of me, and they wouldn't let me go. And I've often thought of these words throughout the years. These words were spoken by A.W. Tozer in the last century, and they are these. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. What an interesting quote. What comes into our minds when we first think of God is the most important thing about us. Now, if you were to close your eyes and to think of God, what thoughts, what feelings, what emotions would you experience as you did that? Now, if you were to think of God as a loving Heavenly Father, you would be spot on because God is a loving Heavenly Father. That's how Jesus taught us to think about Him. If you were to think of God as all-knowing and everywhere present and all-powerful, you would be spot on because the Scriptures do, in fact, teach us these things. If you were to think of God as kind and patient, slow to anger, filled with steadfast love, you probably couldn't do very much better than that because that's how God revealed Himself to Moses. But I wonder, if, would the word holy come to your mind? I mean, after all, we sung several times this morning about how God is holy. If someone were to ask you, what do you mean, you Christians, when you describe God as holy, what would you say? I remember as a young Christian in high school, just growing and my understanding of Christianity and reading the scriptures and seeing this description of God as holy and singing songs like the one we sang this morning, Holy, 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 with other Christians. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what that word means. I mean, it's one of those religious-sounding words. It's, it's one of those spiritual-sounding words, and I felt like I should really know what that means. But for me, as a, as a young believer, it was an empty concept. But today we're going to look at the holiness of God. We're going to do a deep dive, and I'm so glad you're here, my friends, because I believe that this study today has the potential to really touch your life in a deep, deep way. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is something that we should become very familiar with, because we sing songs about God being holy. We sing about uh, the, the holiness of Jesus as well. What do we mean by that? And if you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity, there's probably no better entry point than to understand this concept of the holiness of God. And I'm going to read this passage, but before I do so, let me just give you a little snippet of when I tried to read this passage for the very first time in public. I was in seminary and our preaching coach, our preaching professor, brought in a speech coach to help us become familiar with public speaking. And she knew that many people had never actually spoken publicly. And so she told us to each pick a passage to just read out loud for the first time. We didn't have to preach on it or anything like that, just to get up and read it. And so in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And so she asked who wanted to go first. And so I raised my hand because I wanted to get it out of the way. And so I, I marched up there with a copy of the scriptures in my hand. And I said, my name is John Ferguson. I'm going to read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. 
And she says, what is your name? John Ferguson. She says, you don't even know how to say your own name. Which I was like, okay. <laughs> Thanks for that boost of confidence. I've only been saying it my whole life. I'm John Lafayette Ferguson IV, and actually generations of my family have been saying this name. So obviously I don't know how to say my own name. So with that boost of confidence, I endeavored to read this passage, and I didn't get very far, and she told me to stop. I need to feel what you're reading. I need to close my eyes and be able to envision exactly what you're saying. So I, I tried again. She stopped me and once again told me I wasn't doing it right and I'm not capturing the essence of this, this passage. And so I think she did it a couple more times and finally got to the very end and deflated and defeated. I sat down wondering if I should ever speak in public again. And so I say that just to lower your expectations. This is one of the classic texts on the holiness of God, and it is an amazing passage, and I cannot do it any justice. And, and I don't think anyone can, because it's so amazing in what it teaches us. But this is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How'd I do, friends? <laughs> this passage took place hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Beginning in 740 B.C., Isaiah the prophet ministered through the reign of four different kings of Judah to a nation that was in serious spiritual decline and social decline. As I was thinking about what this must have been like for Isaiah to minister during these times, I thought of Billy Graham, who has had audience with a number of different presidents. I counted up 12 different presidents that he has been able to give counsel to, and Isaiah was a man like that. He was a man that was much respected, a holy man in his time, and he lived through the reigns of four different kings of Judah. And we're told at the very beginning of this passage, in the year that King Uzziah died, who is this man, Uzziah? Why is that important to understand? Where well, Uzziah lived from 790 to 739 B.C., 
And the scriptures tell us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous king. One who rightly related to God and rightly related to others. His reign was peaceful. And the nation of Judah prospered under his leadership. But as so often is the case with people who have great power and see great success, it, it went to his head and pride became his downfall. One day he entered into the temple to offer a holy fire, which he was not authorized to do. He was the king. Only the priests were able to do this. And so the high priest, along with 80 other priests, rushed in to confront him over what he was doing. And instead of humbling himself and saying, I made a mistake, he flew into a rage. He began yelling and screaming. And the scriptures tell us that in this moment, he broke out in leprosy. And he lived the rest of his days hardened, unrepentant, and in exile. This was King Uzziah. And so we're told that in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah had this vision. J. Mutir in his wonderful commentary on the prophecy of Isaiah said, Uzziah, as the darkness closed in upon him, was symbolic of Israel's view, I'm sorry, of Isaiah's view of the nation, its plight and its problem. The prophet saw in, in respect of one what he feared for all, that the time had come when even the Lord was saying, what more ought I to have done? So when we hear these words in the year that King Uzziah died, think of national tragedy, of a, of a well-loved but tragic king, and the uncertainty that comes with a change of leadership. That's what's going on. There's a crisis of leadership in the land. And it's in this time that King Uzziah died that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He has this vision. Maybe he was in the temple when he saw this, and maybe the heavenly temple merged with the earthly temple. We're not really sure exactly what's going on here. But in this moment, he sees the Lord. And he's high and exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple. I was thinking about the, the dress and the robe that Queen Elizabeth wore at her, her coronation. And I looked it up, and it said that it was carried behind her by six maidens. It took some 3,500 hours for the, the embroiderers and the seamstresses to make this gown and, and the train behind it. But it was, it was maybe 10 feet long with six maidens. But we're told that this, this train of the robe that the Almighty is wearing filled the temple. And I think we're meant to see in that significance of dignity, of royalty, of gravitas. And Isaiah tells us he saw the Lord, and that word English and that word Lord in English actually is translated several different ways depending on what that Hebrew word is. But here it's the title. It's, it's the Hebrew word Adonai. You may have heard of this before. And it simply means the sovereign one. So when there's a crisis of sovereignty in the land, Isaiah sees the sovereign one, Adonai, high and exalted. R.C. Sproul in his classic work, The Holiness of God, said, when Isaiah came to the temple, there was a crisis of sovereignty in the land. Uzziah was dead. The eyes of Isaiah were open to see the real king of the nation. He saw God seated on the throne, the sovereign one. 
And so in verse 2, we're told that above him stood the seraphim. This word may not be familiar to you, even though we sang it in holy, holy, holy. Seraphim and cherubim are around the throne of God. And this word seraphim is an interesting word. It can be translated as burning or, or shining one, or literally a fiery one. I think the word is meant to convey these spiritual beings who glow. I did a search online of, of some artificial intelligence-generated uh, images, and I came across this one here of a spiritual heavenly being. You see the wings there, and it's radiating and glowing. I, I think this is the image we're supposed to have in our mind when we're told that this seraphim stood above God. And we're told that each had six wings. Interesting creature. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Three sets of two. One set of wings, they fly. With one set of wings, they covered their feet. Many people think the reason they're covering their feet is because it's a sign of humility and creatureliness. You remember the time when God revealed himself to Moses and he told Moses to take off his sandals because he was standing in holy ground. Maybe there's some imagery there as well. And we're told that with two wings, these shining, radiant, heavenly beings cover their face. Isn't that interesting? These beings who are unfallen, unmarred by sin and selfishness, pure spiritual beings cover their faces in the midst of the holiness of God that is radiating out towards them. Sinclair Ferguson, author and theologian, said, the holiness of the presence of God is so overwhelming that they feel themselves in danger of disintegrating. They must cover themselves in the presence of such holiness. What I find fascinating is that in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, this man who spent three years as a disciple of Jesus, and then after that, an apostle of Jesus, he went around proclaiming the gospel. He wrote this book called Revelation when he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And he tells us that an angel appeared to him. You can read about this in, the, in chapter 19 of that book. And, and John himself tells us the presence of this glorious, majestic being. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. John the Apostle, who knew better, was in the presence of this radiant spiritual being, an angel. And he was so overwhelmed and so overcome with its beauty and its purity and its holiness that, that he instinctively wanted to fall down and worship this beautiful being. And yet we're told by Isaiah that similar beings are in the presence of God. And in the presence of God's holiness, they have to cover their own face. That's what Isaiah saw. But he tells us what he heard. One called, one, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That phrase, the Lord of hosts, is, is a phrase that sometimes is translated the the Lord of angel armies. is speaking of the hosts of heaven, and sometimes it's translated as Lord God Almighty, significant of, of God's power and the resources available to his disposal. 
But here they call out to one another, holy, holy, holy. They're emphasizing this one particular attribute of God. Now, in the English language, we have all kinds of ways of emphasizing a word. We can underline it, we can highlight it, we can put exclamation points behind it. But the way that Hebrew emphasized something was by repeating it several times. Sometimes you might hear a word repeated twice. But if it's repeated three times, it's emphasizing it. It's drawing a circle around it, putting exclamation points by it, underlining it, highlighting it, italicizing it. Holy, holy, holy. Ray Ortland in his commentary said this, Holy, holy, holy is not just repetition. It is emphasis. It isn't one plus one plus one. It's perfection times perfection times perfection. The holiness of God distinguishes him absolutely, even from angels. The Bible speaks of the splendor of God's holiness, the majesty of God's holiness, the incomparability of God's holiness. His holiness is simply his godness and all his attributes works in ways. He is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the previous one exponentially. It takes unique linguistic contrivance to convey the meaning beyond the meaning as the seraphim strain the leash of language to say that God alone is God. He is not like us, only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category. He is holy. R.C. Sproul put it like this. Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. Or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. And that the whole earth is full of his glory. So as Isaiah tells us about these angelic voices booming this phrase out in succession to one another, can you just stop for a moment and imagine what that must have been like? Angelic voices. No doubt you've heard some amazing singers and some incredible choirs in your life hit notes that sent tingles down your spine. What must have this been like for Isaiah to have heard these angelic voices? We're told in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah feels everything around him moving. Nothing feels safe. Nothing feels secure. Nothing feels solid as he's in the presence of this holy God and these angels. Everything is moving. As I was thinking about this, I thought of a time when I think 
is, is, well, I know, it was in association with one of A&M's football games, and the day before, the fighter jets were out making their practice passes at the stadium, and I don't know, one must have done a circle just right by my house because it was so loud, and the windows were rattling. It was a bit unnerving, although I put two and two together really fast to understand what must be going on. But I remembered another time. It was August 15, 2007, and my family and I were on the sixth floor of a six-story hotel in Lima, Peru. And at 6.40 in that evening, 95 miles to the south of us, an earthquake with a magnitude of 8.0 hit. And at first I thought, because I was sitting on the bed, that maybe my kids who were behind me were wrestling or moving. And all of a sudden I felt the hotel go up and down like this. And Heather rushed into the room and we grabbed the kids and we stood in the doorframe just trying to hold on as we felt everything around us become liquid. It was unnerving in those moments to feel everything solid become unsolid. And the hotel was shaking and debris was falling from the ceilings. And as we rode out that first wave, we we ran down the stairs, six flights, because we didn't want to get on the elevator at that moment to get out into the streets in case this building came down. That was unnerving. So imagine Isaiah seeing this holy God with his holy angels tell us that the foundations of the threshold shook and the house was filled with smoke. I loved what R.C. Sproul said. He said, The inert matter of doorposts, the inanimate thresholds, the wood and the metal that could neither hear nor speak, had the good sense to be moved by the presence of God. That must have been an incredible experience. Isaiah tells us exactly what he was thinking in that moment. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a peculiar thing to say, isn't it? Woe is me. You see, Isaiah was a prophet, and his, his calling in life was to be the mouthpiece of God. It was to go around and call people to repentance. And he would speak words of woe to awaken people of the danger that they're facing if they continue on their insistence of throwing God a bone but living however they wanted. Jesus himself used these words of woe as a prophet. You can read about a series of woes that he communicated to the religious leaders in Matthew 23. I just want to read one of them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. So Isaiah says, woe is me. I love what one commentator said. He said, this is the intuition of a soul which has seen itself in the light of divine holiness. Let's look at this phrase. I want to break it down visually so we can see what he says here. Woe is me. Notice that he gives three reasons for these words of woe that he's calling upon himself. The first one he says, Woe is me for I am lost. It's interesting to look at different translations and see how they translate this phrase. The NIV says, Woe to me. I am ruined. 
The NLT says, it's all over. I'm doomed. The GNT translation says, there is no hope for me. I am doomed. The Net Bible says, too bad for me. I am destroyed. And then there's the way the, the King James translates and puts it. Woe is me, for I am undone. Have you ever had an experience of a feeling like you were undone? Like everything around you and inside you is coming apart? That's what Isaiah is getting at here. Again, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, R.C. Sproul is helpful. He said to, to be undone means to come apart at the seams, to be unraveled. What Isaiah was experiencing is what modern psychologists describe as the experience of personal disintegration. If there was a man of personal integrity, it was Isaiah ben Amos. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. Then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God. In that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am annihilated. I am unraveling. I am I'm coming apart. I am undone. The second reason he gives us is, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I wonder why he said this. I remember being at Bucky's one time and seeing a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. <laughs> Maybe that's Isaiah's struggle. But I think it might be something more than that. In that moment, remember, he's hearing these pure, angelic voices declaring the holiness of God. And maybe for the first time in his life, he realizes he's never actually used his voice the way it should be used. I'm not sure why he said it. But he's overcome with a sense of having unclean lips and living among people of unclean lips. Jesus, in rebuking the Pharisees, called them a brood of vipers. He says, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And maybe in this moment, when Isaiah had this vision, he realizes the abundance of his heart has been speaking about the condition of his soul over and over again. And now in the presence of absolute pure holiness, he just sees how unholy he actually is. Habakkuk said, in a prayer to God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So here's Isaiah in this moment, acutely aware that his heart has been revealed in the things that he said. And not only that, he lives among a people whose hearts are continually being revealed by what they say. And he realizes it has been unholy. And then he gives us one 
final reason. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here in this moment, he's, he has this vision that God allows him to see his glowing radiance and, and purity and holiness. Something that Moses himself wasn't allowed to see. Something that normally would slay us because we have no ability to take it in. Like Isaiah, we would come undone. But he says, my eyes have seen, this, seen the king. He, he has a, a very acute sense that he shouldn't have been able to see what he has just seen. It, it seems like a violation of the holiness of God for, for someone like him to look upon it. And maybe he has the words of Psalm 76 in his mind. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? We're not told in this passage that God who is slow to anger has his anger aroused. But I'm wondering if Isaiah isn't thinking it's coming at any moment because I, an unholy man, am standing in the presence of God. That wasn't enough to see what happens next must have unnerved him even more. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. One of these radiant, shiny, fiery beings goes to the altar before God, where the burning coals are, and he, he takes some tongs and he picks up a coal, careful not to touch this altar, and then he places this coal in his burning hand. So imagine this burning, fiery being having a burning, fiery coal in his hand. And he's coming at you. What would you be thinking? I would want to hide. I would want to be anywhere but in that moment. But then what happens next surprises him. He says, he touched my mouth. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What an incredible image this is. Can you imagine a, a fiery coal being placed upon one of the most sensitive places of your body, your, your very lips? And it should burn and sear them and scar them. You would be writhing in pain. But in this moment, it doesn't do that, it makes them whole. It heals him. And this angel says, your sin is atoned for. That sense that he had of his own unholiness, his own unworthiness, standing in the presence of this amazing vision of God and all his holiness has now been rectified. What disqualified him has now been dealt with. And then what comes next is is even more remarkable. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? If we've been reading the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, you would see Isaiah describing this, this land in deep moral and spiritual chaos, setting up the conditions to understand his call to ministry. And here, so here comes this call to ministry. God is wanting to send a prophet to speak his words, calling this nation from its waywardness back to him. 
And so God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah, who just moments before realized how unclean his lips were, opened those same lips that had now been healed and made whole and says, here I am. Send me. Isn't this incredible? He he just had an experience of disintegrating in the presence of God, of unraveling, of, of losing his integrity, everything that held him together. And now he's been atoned for. And God says, I need to send someone into this land. Who shall I send? And Isaiah, now made whole, says, send me. Here I am. Use me, God. And God does. So let's define this holiness of God. This is the best I could come up with. (laughs) The holiness of God describes what is utterly unique about God, namely the fact that he is separate and sacred in his purity and transcendence. That word holy literally means to cut, to to separate, to, to set apart. And so the holiness of God describes what is utterly unique about him, namely the fact that he is separate, that he is, he is set apart from anything and everything. He is utterly unique. Nothing is like this God. And he is sacred in his purity and his transcendence. Rudolf Otto, last century, did a study on the holiness of God, and he described it in Latin as the mysterium tremendum which roughly translated as the awful mystery. That word awful in our context means like like horrible, terrible, but what we need to hear from that is this awe-filled mystery. This thing that once you grab hold of it, or rather, once it grabs hold of you, fills you with awe. You understand how awesome your creator is. Sproul says in Otto's study of the human experience of the holy, he discovered that the clearest sensation that human beings have when, experiencing the holy, when, when they experience the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are aware of the presence of God, we become most aware of ourselves as creatures. When we meet the absolute, we immediately, we know immediately that we are not absolute. When we meet the infinite, we become conscious that we are finite. When we meet the eternal, we know that we are temporal. And we might add, to meet the holy, we know immediately that we are unholy. We are unlike this holy God. So let me give us just a few points of application Try to take this concept of the holiness of God and apply it to our lives. And the first point of application is this. Let's allow the holiness of God to cause us to be brutally honest with ourselves. If the experience of Isaiah in catching a glimpse of the holiness of God was to become undone, to have his sense of of his personhood unravel before him because he's so conscious of the fact that he is unholy, then what does that mean for us? Remember that slide that I had up earlier when you described that phrase, woe is me? That would be an appropriate designation for us to use as well. C.H.G. Mule 
said, this is the intuition of the soul which has seen itself in the light of divine holiness. Have you ever had that intuition of your soul? When you understand God and and all his majestic holiness, and you see yourself in crystal clarity, woe is me. Paul says, as we read earlier, as Dan read earlier in our service, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, when we compare ourselves to one another, we can go, oh, that guy's a schmuck, I'm better than he. Or that woman over there, she doesn't have it all together like I do. (laughs) But you see, when we compare ourselves not to one another, but to God, it becomes an utterly different story, doesn't it? Isaiah would later say, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, anything good that we can do, are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Or as the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God were to mark the ways that our lives are crooked against the absolute standard of his holiness, there's the question, who would be able to stand? And so the question I have for you is this. Have you ever had a time in which you have come undone before the holiness of God? You see, to begin the the Christian life, To begin to follow Jesus is to have a glimpse of this and a brief experience of this as we understand that our sin separates us from God and yet Christ died for us to wash us from our sin. Just like that angel took that that, that piece of coal from the altar and applied it to Isaiah. So when Jesus' blood is applied to us, we become clean. We become like Jesus. But beyond that first initial experience, have you had moments, or maybe even seasons in your life, when you begin to understand with crystal clearness that God is utterly unique, different from anything and everything, and if he were to mark your sins, you would not be able to stand in his presence? That's the first point of our application. Let's let the holiness of God cause us to be brutally honest with ourselves All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the second point, which is a bit counterintuitive. Let's allow the holiness of God to drive us to Christ, who is the Holy One of God. There's this interesting story in the Gospels of when Jesus is first calling his disciples and these fishermen have been out on the lake all night and they've been fishing and haven't caught anything and as they rowed ashore, Jesus calls out and asks them if they caught anything and they say no. And this man on the shore has the audacity to tell them to throw their, their nets in the water one more time. You can imagine these fishermen who are experts at their craft wondering who this Yahoo is on shore telling them how to do their job. But for whatever reason, maybe cultural kindness or something like that, they, they throw their nets back in. And a miracle happened. And they couldn't even pull the load of fish back up in their nets. And we're told in the Gospel of Luke, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What an interesting experience. 
What an interesting thing for, for Peter to say. Why would he say something like that? Without knowing everything that was in his mind, he just saw something that was out of the ordinary. This miracle that happened right in his sight. And whoever this person is that told him to do this, he feels all of a sudden unworthy to be in his presence and tells this person to depart from him because he is sinful. Not that man, but Peter is. But here's the thing. Jesus, who is holy, is God come to us, wrapped in human flesh, whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, nevertheless hanging out with unholy people, living in the midst of unholy people. In fact, he was called the friend of sinners. How is this possible? How can someone so amazing like Jesus, so holy and utterly unique and distinct from any other human who's ever lived, draw near to the unholy? Not only did he draw near, but we're told in his crucifixion when the Romans and the Jews conspired to put this man to death, that in that moment, God placed the sins of people like you and me upon his broad shoulders. And there he bore them in his body and God condemned them there in Jesus' own flesh so that it wouldn't be condemned in our flesh. The way Paul puts it, God made him who knew no sin to beast come sin for us. Can you imagine that? This holy, divine being whom angels worshipped as holy, holy, holy has now come to earth clothed in human flesh and has taken all the unholiness of sinful people like you and me upon himself. What an incredible mystery. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he's standing before people preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, tells these crowds, you have denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Which is an interesting thing for them to say, right? They knew exactly what they were doing but they didn't. Peter says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, including Isaiah, that Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Here Peter is telling the very people who had the audacity to crucify the Holy One to now repent and to turn back. And God will have mercy and grace upon them and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isaiah would tell his people, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. I wonder where Isaiah got this thought. Oh yeah, he experienced it. (laughs) Remember the moment he said, woe is me. The angelic hosts swarmed to him to make atonement for his sins, which is a picture to us what Christ does. And, And Isaiah wanted his people to know, he wants us to know, 
that the moment you open your mouth to cry for mercy, God rises to show you not what you deserve, but compassion. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. So here's the third point and final point of application. Let's cherish the holiness of God. Only a believer who has been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, made pure before God's eyes, holy and righteous, having the righteousness and holiness of Christ draped around him, can cherish the holiness of God. We can say the words that Moses sang when he said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That is, among everything that people cherish and worship, who is like you? Who is like you, majestic, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You know, when we get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we get another glimpse of what's going on in heaven. And we're told there are beings around the throne of God saying these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. My friends, before the throne are beings who say that. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will join that song one day too. You, who by nature are unholy, having been made holy by the blood of Jesus, will be with all those majestic beings in heaven and all the redeemed through the ages, opening your lips and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It gets even better. One last verse. The Apostle John said these words. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself because he is pure. Do you see what he is saying here? He's saying to people like you and me, people who sought to follow Jesus, who trusted in him, he said, what we're going to be has not yet appeared. <laughs> that means we're unfinished works, and we're going to be made into something even more glorious because we're going to be made like him. And we're going to be able, did you catch this? We're going to be able to see him as he is. Did you know, my friends, that the scripture tells us, Jesus tells us, that you will see the face of God. Remember those angelic beings who had to hide their face? You will be given a glimpse, an eternal view of the utter holiness of God. And you're going to need a glorified body to be able to sustain that. You're going to, be, you're going to need to be a new creation. You're going to be, have to be supernaturally upheld to be able to withstand the intensity and the power and the overwhelming sense of peace that comes from looking on the face of God. So Mercy Hill, may the holiness of God leave an indelible mark upon you and upon your life as you follow Jesus, the Holy One who loved you and gave himself for you. Amen.